Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to. In Revelation, all things new, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Well, with that being said, today we get to go back into the Word of God, and I want you to open your Bibles or your Bible apps and join me in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 is where we're going to go today, and what a glorious chapter it is. I'm, I'm pretty thrilled to be able to share with you after a long week of uh, personal challenges and uh, looking throughout our world and seeing just reminders of the fallenness of the world around us, it's good to be reminded of the faithfulness of Jesus and his word. You know, I was reminded this week that Christianity is often called the greatest story ever told. How many have ever heard Christianity described that way as the greatest story ever told? And one of the reasons why Christianity is described that way is because Christianity, the gospel, is a cosmic story. What I mean by that is unlike many religions, the, the gospel is not narrow. It is not tribal in nature. It is not simply a national story or the story of the redemption of an ethnic people. The gospel is the story of the redemption of all things. As we will see today, a new heaven and a new earth. Many theologians have described the gospel this way as having four chapters in it. And I want to walk through these four chapters with you really quickly. If I had to tell the story of the arc of the Bible through just a few verses of Scripture, this is how I would do it. The first uh, chapter in the story of the gospel is, is creation. And here we go to Genesis chapter 1 and listen to the words of God in verse number 31. It says, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Our God is holy. He is mighty. He is worthy of our allegiance and worthy of our praise. And in the beginning, he creates the heavens and the earth and it is without blemish. It is perfect and faultless and sinless. And at the apex of his creation is humanity, you and me. When he makes man, he looks upon us and he says, and it is very good. And he endowed us with many great gifts, many wonderful gifts. But maybe one of those gifts that we often underestimate is free will. He gave us free will. Now, anybody who's a parent knows the danger of free will. Uh, I'll have to have a conversation with the Lord about the whole thing of giving kids free will later on. Um, but... Free will is important, and the reason why free will is so important is because you can't have genuine love apart from free will. When love is forced or coerced, it's not really love at all. So if you're gonna have love, a person has to have the ability to choose you, but in having that ability, they often have the ability, they also have the ability to reject you. And this is a story of humanity. By the time Genesis 3 uh, comes into the picture, we are rejecting God. Adam and Eve is choosing their own desires over God. They reject God. 
And things go from being very good to very bad. This is the second uh, chapter in the story of the gospel. It's called The Fall. And listen to these words in Genesis chapter 6. Many verses speak of the fall, but I'll just pick one. Genesis chapter 6, verse number 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the verdict concerning men. That in our fallenness and our sinfulness, we lust after our own desires and our own appetites, choosing self-gratification over the glory of God. And um, I think we underestimate the amount of evil that exists in the world and even the potential for evil within us. But God, seeing beyond our actions to our very thoughts, recognizes that the whole lot, the whole reality has been corrupted. This is the fall. And that would be a sad chapter to end on, but praise God, the gospel story doesn't end on that chapter. Everything from this chapter, this moment on, until the chapter that we're gonna read about today is all about the third chapter in the gospel story. It's called redemption. And in uh, Paul's writing, 2 Corinthians chapter five, and I'm hitting these quickly, but 2 Corinthians chapter five, verses 18 and 19, We hear these words about the chapter of redemption. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself, us rather, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What a glorious chapter redemption is. Jesus comes into the world, the God man. He lives a sinless and perfect life and he goes to the cross as our propitiation, our expiation, our substitutionary sacrifice, paying the debt that we owe, taking our sin upon himself in exchange for his righteousness that we experience by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Can I get an amen? Amen. And praise God that redemption is made available, not just for one tribe, not just for one nation, not just for one ethnic group, but God so loved the world. So that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And redemption is beautiful when it happens in your life. But that's not the final chapter. There's something even more glorious coming. And it's a story of restoration. And what we're going to see today in the story of restoration is that God is making all things new. But there is a day that's coming where there will be no more evil, no more sin, no more death, no more corruption. God is making all things new, the heavens and the earth. That's what we have to look forward to. Now, why is God giving us this story? Why is he telling us about that day today? Well, I believe it's important for us to understand that though the scriptures are timeless, they're also timely. We're a secondary audience to this book of Revelation. It was written around the AD 60 or so, is what some estimate. uh, John, 
the apostle, writing down these visions that God gave him, but it is written to seven churches. We read about these seven churches in chapters two through four of the book of Revelation, and it's written to them who are facing enormous persecution, enormous trials, and experiencing daily pain and grief and sorrow under the, the rule of an emperor named Nero. They're being thrown to lions. They're being imprisoned for their faith. They're being burned at the stake, things that our minds cannot even fathom. And John writes them to tell them, have a living hope today. Trust in Christ, because there's a payoff that is coming for our faithfulness to the mission of knowing him and making him known. Don't give up now. How sad would it be if you worked the entire week and quit the day before payday? Don't quit before the payoff comes. Heard a great analogy about this. I love this. Tim Keller gave this analogy. How many know or heard the name Mike Rowe before? Anybody ever heard that name? He, he's popular for a number of things, but one of his most famous shows is called Dirty Jobs, where he goes and he uh, visits various jobs in America that are dirty in nature, but certainly needed for us to live the lives of convenience that we enjoy. Shout out to everybody who's doing a dirty but needed job. Now, can you imagine being a sewer cleaner? Can you imagine that being your job? Somebody say amen. amen. Takes a big faith amen for that. And can you imagine on top of that having a hard boss who is mean to you, who uh, overworks you, who mistreats you in every way imaginable? Now, imagine if the salary for that job was the robust amount of $20,000 per year pay once at the end of the year. That's going to be a hard job to endure. Amen? But imagine if the payoff for that job at the end of it was $20 million. How many would put up with a little bit more from your boss? <laughs> right? Have a little bit more endurance, right? Well, this, my friends, the new heaven, the new earth, the redemption of all things, God making all things new. That is the $20 million payoff. Bodies that will no longer die. This mortality putting on immortality. Me exchanging my grief, my, my tears, my mourning for joy and peace and rejoicing forevermore. That is what lies ahead. That is the payoff that is what I pray bursts within you today, a living hope as you think about that day. That is what makes the Christian stories, story such a glorious story, the greatest story ever known. Today I want us to look at chapter four of the story of the gospel, restoration, God making all things new. Look at, with me at uh, chapter 21, and there's three things that God wants us to grasp about the future. And understand that the whole point of this whole thing is for us to understand that the future is better than now. Don't get so satisfied with what you're experiencing right now that you think it's greater than what lies ahead. What lies ahead is bigger and better than anything this world can offer you. This world pales in comparison with the promise of the world to come. Chapter 20 in our study ends time as we now know it, the church age. What we're about to read now is about a new time 
known as the kingdom age. Look at what it says in verses one and two. The first thing God wants us to grasp, he wants us to see the new reality. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. These are beautiful words, powerful words, poetic words. John sees an entire and a complete renovation of heaven and earth. This is not mere makeup. This is not touch-up. This is an entire renovation. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, imagine for a moment you hire a contractor and you say to that contractor, I need you to fix my gutters, paint a few rooms, and lay some carpet. You give them the keys to the house, you go to work, you come, come back, and your house has been totally torn down and a new house being built in its place. You are totally shocked. You say to the carpenter, you say to the contractor, what are you doing? Only to hear the contractor reply and say, I'm sorry, I don't just do improvements, I build new houses. This is what Jesus does. Jesus does not just come and do improvements. He's not a self-help book. He's not a self-help guru. Jesus doesn't come just to help you to lose 50 pounds or your hair grow back or to get you the husband or the wife of your dreams. I know these are all temporal things that we all want or desire, but Jesus is Lord of all. And when you accept him as your Lord and Savior, he tears down the old you. He tears down the old house. He totally deconstructs the whole life, the old life. This is what he desires to do so that he can replace it and renew it with a brand new you and a brand new life. How many praise God that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus? Not just an improved old creature, but you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. But Here's the good news, the glorious news, the grand news that John wants us to see, this new reality, is he does not just stop at making us new, he makes the heavens and the earth new. A new heaven, a new earth, replacing the earth that was full of corruption and brokenness, replacing the heavens that deteriorate, and now there is the eternal perfection and beauty that has been promised to us that we have only gotten glimpses of or foretaste of here and there, but the promise of peace, of holiness, of God's goodness from everlasting to everlasting, it's fulfilled in these words. And then he says this powerful statement that on the modern reader is lost but on the original audience is powerful. He says this, and the sea was no more. There will be no more sea. Now to us, we say, well, why is that significant? But to the first century reader, the sea was this uncontrollable force. 
in which so many bad things were experienced. It was an untamable danger. The sea where, where men lost their lives. The sea brought floods in. The sea was considered the epitome, the personification of all that was dangerous, all that was untamable, all that was evil. And the promise of John to his original audience is there is a day that, that's coming where there will be no more sea. There's a day that is coming, friends, where there will be no more corruption, no more governmental evils, no more corporate abuses, no more men or women with power exercising that power to the disadvantage of others, no more of the isms that mark our day that cause people to feel wounded and broken. All of it has been eclipsed by the glory of God do you know what's greater than the sea? God is greater than the sea. You know what's greater than the evil of men? God is greater than the evil of men. And that is why he is worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, all of the glory for all of our days. He is great. And there will be no more sea. And then he goes on to say, and I saw, again, second time he sees. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The mistake that we would make is to see this description as a place. He is not referring to a place. He is referring to a people the key to understanding this is to understand he is referring to the bride. This is his way of describing the bride of Christ. This is his way of describing the church. The church to him looks like a radiant holy city. The church on her wedding day looks like a new Jerusalem. The church is a bride adorned for her husband. It's amazing to me how beautiful a bride can look. And I want to use an illustration, but I use it carefully. But maybe you've met a woman before who looked absolutely normal the day before her wedding. But then the miracle of miracles happens. And on her wedding... She looks absolutely radiant. Anybody ever experienced that before? Don't raise your hand. Let me get in trouble by myself. Don't, don't even join me. Don't even join me in this, right? But every bride looks beautiful on her wedding day in spite of the blemishes that may have been highly visible the day before. We live in a time where the blemishes of the church are on full display. Go on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you hear story after story of blemish after blemish, mistake after mistake, fall from grace after fall from grace. You live in the body life long enough and you will experience what it means to know that sheep bite. The church has blemishes now, but not on that day. 
when that day comes, he will present his bride to himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. When he appears, we shall be as he is, as holy as he is, as radiant as he is, so shall his bride be. This is not describing a place for people. It's describing a people for a place. Who are the people? It's the church. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what is the place? He's told us what the place is. It's the new heaven. It's the new earth. We are adorned beautifully, radiant, so that we can live with God in a new heaven, in a new earth that is without evil, without any corruption, without any brokenness. And how many cannot wait for that payoff and that day that is promised to us? It is coming, it is coming, it is coming. The second thing I want you to grasp with all of your heart is to hear about our new home. He goes further in verse number three and says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will dwell with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Can I be honest and a little bit vulnerable for a moment? Um, these words are too great for me to preach with um, adequacy. It is trying to describe a sunrise. It is trying to use the frailty of my words to describe what love means in the heart of a newlywed or a sweet fragrance. I will do my best, but even at my best, What's described here is far greater. But you notice in verse number three, he goes from what he saw to what he heard. This is a multi-sensory experience that he is going through. It is not only technicolor, it is the greatest sound you'll ever hear. And he heard the booming, affirming, and loving voice of the one who sits on the throne. It is God that is speaking. And only God's voice can be as strong as thunder, as the roar of many mighty waters, but as affirming as a father who comes to comfort a child who's maybe scared in the night. And the father says these words. And sometimes, sometimes, trying to find the main point of a text is hard. Sometimes we are searching for hours or days to say, what is the big idea of this text? But then there are other times through the gift or the literary tool of redundancy where the author does not want us to get, miss it. It's as if John is saying, you might be a slow learner, but I'm going to say this not once, not twice, but three times record this so that you don't miss it. God speaking, John recording, me echoing. The main point is that God dwells with his people. Three times he says that. Behold, the dwelling place 
of God is with men. That's number one. Second time, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. Third time, and God himself will be with them as their God. Three times he's reminding us that he will dwell with us. And why? Why does he remind us of this? It is to help us to understand what the payoff of our faith really is. The grand prize of your faith in God is God. At the end of it all, we get him. And this is the danger of the prosperity gospel. Maybe you've heard of the prosperity gospel. It is a promise of wealth and health, material possessions now as if that is the apex of our faith. But the best thing God can give is somehow a promotion or a big house or a new car or money or things. But here's the thing that you gotta understand. The more you love those things, the more you are settling for the lesser and forgetting the greater. Greater than cars or homes or money or even physical health in this life or possessions, or popularity, or Facebook likes, or Instagram followers, or fame, or fortune, is God. He is greater. He is the prize. And what do we get when God dwells with us? We get verse number four. Look at it. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When God dwells with you, he and only he can deliver this. I've seen people with great jobs and wonderful incomes that still cry and still have tears. I've seen people with big houses and fancy cars that could not elude or avoid death. I've seen people who have had money and possessions that still mourn and still have a life with pain filling their hearts. You see, money can't cure a broken heart. Possessions and jobs and things are to be enjoyed like a meal that is good for the moment but will fade away. Enjoy it to the full while you can, but don't see it as the ultimate because as soon as you build your life upon it, it will make wings and fly away. But only God can satisfy the human heart. Only God can heal what is broken and replace mourning with joy, tears with laughter, pain with healing, and hope that is eternal. And the living hope that comes when God dwells with you gives you the strength to look death in the eye and say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him and I will praise the Lord because he is good. How many know that he is worthy? God is the prize. I'll close with this. 
The third thing he wants us to do is receive the promised word. Look at the B part of verse number five. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friends, this passage is too beautiful for me to describe with mere words, but I will do my best. He goes from seeing to hearing to being commanded to write now. And the thing that he's commanded to write is that this promise can be trusted. Now the credibility of any promise is not in what is promised. No matter how great this story is, if all this was was a promise, there's no point in trusting in it. If what you had was simply John's writings or my voice, then that would be worthless. But the credibility of any promise is in the one who promised. These words that John wrote that I echo are simply God's words. And he wants you to know his credibility. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, from everlasting to everlasting, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who loved you and made you, redeemed you when you were broken, and is making all things new. It is him that angels bow to. It is him that heaven rejoices. It is him that all of humanity will acknowledge as King of kings and Lord is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. This is the one who promises us a new heaven and a new earth and that he will dwell with us and the sea will be no more. No more crying. No more tears. No no more mourning, no more pain. The former things are passed away and behold, all things are made new. And then he asks a question. The question he asks is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Every one of us knows what it is to be parched. Every one of us knows what it is to have dry mouth, to be thirsty. Every one of us knows what it is to have longings, longings for more than what we have now. He says to us, like he says to the woman at the well, if you drink of this water, if you drink of the water of this world, you will thirst again. But if you drink deeply from the cup of his grace, you will thirst no more. Everything you're looking for to satisfy your soul is found in him. Then he closes with a warning. This warning is about sin. And we're going to close in a song of worship, a beautiful song in worship. 
in just a moment, they're going to come out and they're going to set up for that song. But let me just say, he begins to name liars and the sexually immoral and sorcerers and those who practice idolatry and all of these things. And this is a reminder to us of why we have to preach against sin. No preacher wants to preach in sin, we, about sin. We have to preach about sin because sin is what separates us from a holy God. And I don't want you to miss out on this. And so we preach about sin to, to encourage you, to charge you, to implore you, turn from sin to Christ for salvation so that you can experience the beauty of this. How many want those you love to experience all of this? All your friends, all your family members. And I want you to experience this. And so friends, today, I encourage you, I encourage you that if you have not given your heart to Christ, or maybe you did and you wanted a way, come back to him today. Let today be the day of salvation. Don't get this close and walk away. There's a new Jerusalem waiting for us. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.